0: I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 4. Jeremiah chapter 4, starting today right where we left off last week in verse 5. It's going to take us a while, Joe, to get all the way to chapter 33, which you quoted this morning. But after today, we'll be 10% through the book of Jeremiah already. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 5, which you can find if you're inside on Pew Bible page number seven five zero pew bible page number seven hundred and fifty or turn in or turn on your own bible and turn to jeremiah chapter four jeremiah chapters four five and six really hang together as one unit of this book but three chapters seem like a little too much for us to bite off and chew in one message So I thought we'd do chapters 4 and 5 this Sunday and look at chapter 6 on its own next Sunday. Jeremiah chapters 4, 5, and 6 are all about the judgment that is coming on Judah. We saw that this judgment was predicted already in chapter 1. In chapter 2, the Lord explained why that judgment was coming as he brought charges of infidelity against his people. And in chapter 3, the Lord invited His people to escape that judgment by repenting. He invited them to repent and return to Him. Do you remember that from last week? Shuv, return to me. Well, they did not repent. And they continued to not repent. And so Jeremiah continued to warn them about the judgment that was going to be poured out upon them. That boiling pot tilted from the north, ready to scorch the rebellious people of Jerusalem and all of Judah. That's what chapters 4, 5, and 6 are all about. Let me give you a little taste of it. Let me read you the first four verses of chapter 4. Verse 5 through verse 8. This is the word of the Lord. Announce in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Sound the trumpet throughout the land. Cry aloud and say, Gather together. Let us flee to the fortified cities. Raise the signal to go to Zion. Flee for safety without delay. For I am bringing disaster from the north, even terrible destruction. A lion has come out of his lair. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has left his place to lay waste to your land. Your towns will lie in ruins without inhabitant. So put on sackcloth. Lament and wail. For the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned away from us. Have you ever wondered what it would be like To be a true prophet of God? What would it feel like to be the mouthpiece of the living God? The spokesman of the living God? A true prophet? Someone being given fresh revelation from God to deliver to the people? I am, thankfully, not a prophet. And I'm not the son of a prophet. And I work for a non-profit organization but I do get to regularly represent God and try to faithfully present His words. I'm trying to do so right here, right now. I hope you do as well in your spheres of influence. But I wonder what it would be like to be an Old Testament prophet. Not just to teach and preach and share what God has already said in His written word to the current generation, but to, but to have God actually put his words fresh and hot right into your mouth. To be able to see the future. To to know what is going to happen and to be tasked with telling others what it will be. What would that be like? Huh. Well, if the words of Jeremiah are any indication, it could apparently be pretty miserable. it could apparently be pretty miserable to be a true prophet of the Lord, at least in a time of great national decline, such as the last 40 years before the exile of the southern kingdom of Judah. Jeremiah was not called the weeping prophet for nothing. It was no fun to be a true prophet in the time of Jeremiah. In fact, it could be downright excruciating. The title for this message, you probably see it on the inside of your bulletin. The title for this message is drawn from the words of Jeremiah in chapter 4, verse 19, where he says, Oh, my anguish, my anguish. The Hebrew for that literally is my innards, my innards. It's what you cry out when you have a massive pain in your gut. My belly, my belly. Seven years ago this last week, I had my first bout with diverticulitis. I was working on a sermon for you from Romans chapter 12 one Saturday, and I had this growing pain in my gut. I thought it was a stomach bug because I had a fever to go with it. And I got up on Sunday morning and preached with a fever of 102. And then I was too weak to drive home after church. Remember that other toy? <laughs> Yes, she says, yes. That was pre-COVID, wasn't it? Imagine coming to church with a fever. I thought I was getting over it. And I just sleep it off. And then the pain got worse and worse until I was saying to Heather, my belly, my belly. And so we went to the ER and then I got my first ride in an ambulance and that started my odyssey of diverticulitis, which was resolved eventually with surgery. Apparently, sometimes it hurts like that to be a true prophet like Jeremiah. And I think that teaches us something important about how to live for Jesus in 2022. Jeremiah, in his anguish, is a model for us for how to live as faithful followers of Jesus Christ in this day and age. It might not be what you wanted to hear this morning. But it's what I feel like we need to hear. It's not always obvious how to act, what to say, what to say out in social media, what to do in various situations in living for Christ in America in 2022. Especially when you think of all that other Christians are saying and doing out in the world. Out on social media, out in the public square, out in the churches. I am often bewildered when I learn what supposed Christians are saying and doing. How do we respond? Well, one of the key ways we respond is with tears. With lament. With sadness, with with agony. With personal pain over the choices that our fellow Christians are making, we respond with tears. Now, we're going to read a lot of words this morning, but I only have two simple points to make from these two chapters. Two things I want to point out over which we should rightly and righteously agonize. Here's number one. My anguish, number one, over my people's pain. Over my people's pain. Jeremiah knows that Judah is in for a world of hurt. That was clear from the first four verses I read to you, right? Look at verse 5 again. Announce in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say sound the trumpet throughout the land cry aloud and say gather together let us flee to the fortified cities raise a signal to go to Zion flee for safety without delay for i am bringing disaster from the north even terrible destruction that's going to hurt. Jeremiah says that Judah is going to be attacked and destroyed. Now we don't know when Jeremiah said this. It could have been. It's not dated here. Like some of the prophets are dated, this one is not dated. It could have been 40 years before it actually occurred. They might have had a lot of bright and sunny, sunny, sh- sunny, shiny days. Nice days. Nice spring days. Lots of them. And then judgment came. Like if someone predicted an attack on Lance. In 1982. And it's just happening now. But Jeremiah, the prophet, could see it coming clearly. And he was warning them not to get ready to fight, but to get ready to flee. His alarm was going off. (laughs) He was sounding the prophetic emergency broadcasting system. (laughs) This is not a test. This is not a test, Jeremiah says. Run! From whom were they supposed to run? Well, from him. The Lord is the one bringing this disaster. And he's doing it through an invader from the north, whom we will eventually discover is Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Look at verse 7. A lion has come out of his lair. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has left his place to lay waste to your land. Your towns will lie in ruins without inhabitants. How does Jeremiah feel about that? How does he feel about this message that he has to proclaim to them? Well, he tells them to cry about it. Verse 18. To put on sackcloth, lament, and wail. For the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned away from us. In that day, declares the Lord, the king and the officials will lose heart. The priests will be horrified and the prophets will be appalled. It's going to be terrible. Like nothing you've ever seen. The wrath of God is coming. And everyone is going to agonize over it. You, you, you know, Jeremiah could just sit back and laugh. Right? I mean, these guys have brought this on themselves, right? Jeremiah could be like, hey, pass the popcorn. Let's watch these guys get what they deserve. Forty years they've been doing this. And I've been telling them. I told them so. Ha look. But that's not what Jeremiah does. He actually talks back to God about the whole thing. Look at verse 10. Then I said, ah, sovereign Lord, how completely you've deceived this people and Jerusalem by saying you will have peace when the sword is at our throats. Now that is a, a very confusing verse. If you read that and went, what? So did I, about all week this week. It's one of the hardest to interpret in the whole Prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah actually might be wrong here. The Bible isn't wrong. It perfectly captures what Jeremiah said. But Jeremiah might have thought at the time that the prophets of peace were from the Lord. But we know from the rest of this book that the prophets of peace were not true prophets of the Lord. They were false prophets. And we also know that the Lord does not deceive us, though he does allow us at times to be deceived. I think it's more likely that that's what Jeremiah is saying. Something like that. He's agonizing over the fact that the Lord in his wisdom and perfect justice has allowed false prophets to proliferate in Judah, spreading the lie that everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. Peace. When everything was not going to be okay. I'll bet Jeremiah wished that the Lord would just zap those false prophets right then and there, right? Zap, peace, peace, zap, peace, peace, zap. We're going to see this again and again in Jeremiah. People saying it's okay. You can live however you want. It'll be okay. Now, which prophets do you think were more popular for 40 years? The prophets of peace and prosperity and live however you want. Or that sad, old, gloomy Jeremiah, the prophet of doom. But Jeremiah knows the sword is at our throats. And not just a sword, but a storm. Verse 11. At that time, this people in Jerusalem will be told, A scorching wind from the barren heights in the desert blows toward my people. But not to winnow or cleanse. A wind too strong from that comes from me. Now I pronounce my judgments against them. The desert storm of judgment is coming. A Sirocco destroying everything in its path. In verse 13, Jeremiah sees it. He he actually has a vision of this attack. Verse 13, look! He advances like the clouds. His chariots come like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us! We are ruined! Oh, Jerusalem! Wash the evil from your heart and be saved! How long will you harbor wicked thoughts? Even now he's calling them to repent. Verse 15, a voice is announcing from Dan, proclaiming disaster from the hills of Ephraim. Tell this to the nations, proclaim it to Jerusalem. A besieging army is coming from a distant land, raising a war cry against the cities of Judah. They surround her like men guarding a field because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Mic drop. So Ephraim and Dan are up in the north the picture in jeremiah's mind is an attack that that descends that swarms in from the north and decimates judah in the south so that they all say woe to us we are ruined why why all this pain verse 18 your own conduct and actions have brought this upon you this is your punishment How bitter it is. How it pierces to the heart. See, all this pain is self inflicted. They deserve this. They have brought this on themselves by their ways and their deeds. So, how does Jeremiah respond to that? With anguish. No smug satisfaction. No prideful laughing at these people, getting their comeuppance. No schadenfreude. The Germans have a word for everything, don't they? Schadenfreude is this idea of like enjoying it when somebody else gets what's coming to them. Schadenfreude. Is that how Jeremiah responds? No. He responds with tears. Just thinking about what is going to happen to his people makes Jeremiah feel completely awful. Verse 19. Oh, my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the agony of my heart. My heart pounds within me. I cannot keep silent. For I have heard the sound of the trumpet. I have heard the battle cry. Disaster follows disaster. The whole land lies in ruins. In an instant, my tents are destroyed. My shelter in a moment. How long? How long must I see the battle standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? Do you hear his pain? Over his people's pain? You know, he could just quit caring. That's a real temptation today. When you see people making foolish choices... When you log on to social media and you see fellow Christians saying foolish things again. When you read the news reports and you hear the latest scandals happening in churches. When your friends and family members make foolish choices and the painful consequences start coming down on them. It's tempting to say, well, they made their bed. They can lie in it. I don't care anymore. It's true. They made the bed. It's true. They may lie in it. But Jeremiah wasn't able to stop caring. And I think you and I should be like that too. Because I think that Jeremiah's heart reveals the heart of his God. Oh, my anguish, my anguish. I writhe in pain. Oh, the agony of my heart. My heart pounds within me. I cannot keep silent. This is the first of several passages in the book that are often called Jeremiah's laments. Not to be confused with lamentations, which kind of carries on the theme. Sometimes they're called Jeremiah's confessions, like his heart to God. Jeremiah just kind of goes like this. He bears his heart to the Lord, and he pours it out on the page for us to see ourselves. And not only does his belly hurt, but he's having a heart attack. The the one phrase there in the Hebrew is literally, oh, the walls of my heart. He can feel the walls of his heart. He thinks his heart is just just bursting. It's going to burst thinking about what is going to happen to his people. He's almost in shock, and he wonders how long he's going to have to feel this way. What's the answer to that? A long time. He talked this way for 40 years. And as far as we know, he died after seeing it all actually happen. Jerusalem ransacked. The people carried off. Him deported to Egypt. With all these feelings still in his heart. Anguish at his people's self-inflicted pain. Do you think that's a little pitiful? Are you tempted to kind of shake your head at Jeremiah's words? Maybe you think he's being a little over the top here. My anguish, my anguish. Come on, Jeremiah, lighten up. Look at the bright side. I mean, these people definitely deserve this. Who does Jeremiah remind you of when he's being like this? Yeah. That's who I hear too. I hear Jesus. Can't read these words without thinking about how Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Or the time when he felt, the the, the things he felt when he went through the towns and villages preaching the gospel. The the gospel of Matthew tells us in chapter 9, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. What are sheep like when they don't have a shepherd? Well, they're out of control, for one thing. They're going in every direction. And, and they get into all kinds of trouble. Into the water, can't get out. Their, their wool gets all soaked, they drown. Into the fire, not smart enough to stay out of the fire. Sheep without a shepherd are in big trouble. Through self-inflicted pain. Not to mention the wolves. The wolves. And what did Jesus feel when he saw that? Did he say to his disciples, get a little of this one. I'm going to share this outrageous thing. I can't believe they're doing that, stupid dummies. No, Matthew says that Jesus had compassion on them. And the Greek word there for compassion means anguish. It means a pain in the gut. I have a rule for myself on social media. No outrage and no shaming. I don't always do it perfectly, but that's the general rule I try to live by. No outrage, no shaming. Not because people don't do outrageous things that make me mad. Even fellow Christians. Not because people don't do shameful things. That make me ashamed, even fellow Christians, but because there's plenty of outrage and shame out there to go around already, and there aren't enough tears. More tears. We need more tears. Now that doesn't mean we don't need truth. It's not tears over truth. It's truth through tears. If there's one thing that Jeremiah has to share, it is the truth. He has to call it like it is. Look at verse 22. My people are fools. They do not know me. They are senseless children. They have no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil. They know not how to do good. That's the truth. And it's shameful. I'm not saying there isn't a place for shame. But he doesn't gloat. He doesn't look down his nose at them. He laments their willful ignorance and their skill at sinning. And he laments what is surely going to happen to them because of it. Verse 23. He has another vision. I looked at the earth. And it was formless and empty. And at the heavens, and their light was gone. It was like creation was being undone. Genesis 1, turning back to Genesis 0. Creation was being uncreated. Verse 24, I looked at the mountains, and they were quaking. And all the hills were swaying. I looked, and there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked and the fruitful land was a desert and all its towns lay in ruins before the Lord. Before his fierce anger, this is what the Lord says. The whole land will be ruined. No, it will not destroy it completely. Therefore the earth will mourn and the heavens above grow dark because I have spoken and will not relent. I have decided and will not turn back. At the sound of horsemen and archers, every town takes to flight. Some go to the thickets. Some climb up among the rocks. All the towns are deserted. No one lives in them. It's a picture of total destruction. Well, not total destruction. Do you notice in verse 27 how even this terrible judgment is tempered by the Lord's mercy? Though I will not destroy it completely. He says that like three times in today's passage. He always has a remnant. Until the final judgment, of which this is a terrible foretaste, he always stirs in some mercy just because of who he is. But he makes no excuses for them. And he does not pretend that everything is okay. He doesn't fake it till you make it. He doesn't smile. Instead, he calls it like it is. Just with anguish. Verse 30. What are you doing? Oh, devastated one. Why dress yourself in scarlet and put on jewels of gold? Why shade your eyes with paint? You adorn yourself in vain. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. Do you hear his anguish here? This is the second and last point for this morning. Jeremiah doesn't just have anguish over his people's pain. His anguish is also over their sin as well. Number two, my anguish... Over my people's sin. Over my people's sin. You can hear it in his voice. What are you doing, O oh devastated one? This is shocking. This, this is senseless. This is stubborn. This is shameful. What, what is Judah doing? The invaders are attacking. And, and what is she doing? She's doling herself up for false gods and foreign nations. Ooh, Babylon's coming over? I better get myself ready. What? Instead of repenting and returning to the Lord, she's thinking that if she just does more of what she's been doing, her lovers, then she'll get out of the consequences once again. What kind of logic is that? It's the logic of addiction, it's the logic of sin. We think if we just keep on doing more of what we were doing that got us into this, it'll somehow get us out. But Jeremiah sees through all of that. He says that the seduction act will not work this time around. Her lovers have used her up and are going to kill her this time around. Verse 31 I hear a cry as of a woman in labor a groan as one bearing her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion gasping for breath, stretching out her hands and saying, Alas, I am fainting. My life is given over to murderers. And there she's not play acting. She's suffering because of her sin. Do you know someone who is caught in self-destructive sin? How do you respond to that? You just shake your head and turn away? Glad it's not me. You just wash your hands of it? Thank God you're not like that. Or do you make excuses for them? Oh, well, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe it will work out for them this time around. Or maybe you even celebrate their sin with them. Jeremiah sees it. He calls a spade a spade, a sin a sin. And he weeps. Oh, my anguish. My anguish. The emphasis in chapter 5 is on the rightness and righteousness of God's coming judgment. The Lord keeps asking these indicting questions, these damning questions that bring home just how just the Lord's justice is. But there's no smugness in it at all. No scheidenfreude. If anything, the Lord almost wants to be wrong about his justice. It's like he's testing it at every point to show that yes, this is the right thing. Yes, this is the right thing. He almost seems to want to find a way out of bringing this justice on them. There's no wimpiness here. He's not going to wimp out. He's perfect. But he isn't gleeful in his judgment either. The Lord is in anguish. Listen, chapter 5, verse 1. Yahweh gives Jeremiah a challenge. Go up and down the streets of Jerusalem. Look around and consider. Search through her squares. If you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, I will forgive this city. Now, this might be poetic hyperbole, but the standard here is 10 times lower than it was for the city of Sodom in Genesis 18. Right? We think of Sodom as kind of the bottom of the barrel. Well, Jerusalem had reached 10 times worse. If you can find one righteous man, I'll forgive the whole city. But you know how it's going to end. Verse 2. Although they say, as surely as the Lord lives, still they are all swearing falsely. Jeremiah agrees. Oh Lord, do you not, do not your eyes look for truth? You struck them, but they felt no pain. You crushed them, but they refused correction. They made their faces harder than stone and refused to repent. They refused to shuv. That's who we've got in Jerusalem today. Jeremiah think well, maybe we shouldn't just look among the hoi polloi, just the common people. We should check with their leaders. Verse 4, I thought these are only the poor. They're foolish, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the requirements of their God. So I'll go to the leaders and speak to them. Surely they know the way of the Lord, the requirements of their God. They're the leaders they're supposed to lead. But with one accord, they too had broken off the yoke and torn off the bonds. Or in other words, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. They have all turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. I'm quoting Romans 3 here. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the justice of God is rolling in. Verse 6. Therefore, a lion from the forest will attack them. A wolf from the desert will ravage them. A leopard will lie in wait near their towns to tear to pieces any who venture out, for their rebellion is great and their backslidings are many. They have many shuvs, but they're all in the wrong direction. Now listen to his questions. Why should I forgive you? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by gods that are not gods. I was a good husband. I supplied all your, their needs, yet they committed adultery and thronged to the houses of prostitutes. Idolatry. They are well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for another man's wife. Should I not punish them for this? Declares the Lord. Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? Go through her vineyards and ravage them, but do not destroy them completely. Strip off her branches, for these people do not belong to the Lord. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. They have lied about the Lord, they said. They said, He will do nothing. No harm will come to us. We will never see sword or famine. The prophets are but wind, and the word is not in them. So let what they say be done to them. Do you hear the play on words there? They don't have the breath of the Lord. They don't have the spirit. They just have the wind. These false prophets are, we would call them windbags. But Jeremiah, he's a true prophet. Verse 14. Therefore, this is what the Lord God Almighty says. Because the people have spoken these words, I will make my words in your mouth a fire. And these people, the wood it consumes. Apparently, that is what it feels like to be a true prophet of God. You got a fire burning in your mouth. That does not sound pleasant to me. Sounds urgent. Get that fire out of my mouth. Got to get it out. Sounds powerful. Does something. But it also sounds painful. Jeremiah's mouth was full of fire and the words that came from it were judgment words that uprooted and tore down and destroyed and overthrew the nation. The people were the firewood that the fire in his mouth burned up. Verse 15. O house of Israel, declares the Lord, I'm bringing a distant nation against you, an ancient and enduring nation, a people whose language you do not know, whose speech you do not understand. Their quivers are like an open grave. All of them are mighty warriors. They will devour your harvest and food, devour your sons and daughters. They will devour your flocks and herds, devour your vines and fig trees. With the sword they will destroy the fortified cities in which you trust. And you deserve it. Yet even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not destroy you completely. And when the people ask, why? Why has the Lord our God done all of this? You will tell them, As you have forsaken me and serve foreign gods in your own land, so now you will serve foreigners in a land not your own. Exile announce this to the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, you foolish and senseless people who have eyes who do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Should you not fear me, declares the Lord? What's the answer to that one? Should you not tremble at my presence? Do you hear his anguish? He's not just angry. He's He's hurting. Should they not fear the Creator? Of course they should. Verse 22, I made the sand a boundary for the sea, an everlasting barrier it cannot cross. The waves may roll, but they cannot prevail. They may roar, but they cannot cross it. But these people have stubborn and rebellious hearts. They've turned aside and gone away. They do not say to themselves, let us fear the Lord our God. Who gives autumn and spring rains in season. Who assures us of the regular weeks of harvest. Who gives us beautiful days driving up 144 on our way to Renovo. Why don't we return to Him? Your wrongdoings have kept these away. Your sins have deprived you of good. Among my people are wicked men who lie and wait like men who snare birds and like those who set traps to catch men. Like cages full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. they become rich and powerful and have grown fat and sleek. Their evil deeds have no limit. They do not plead the case of the fatherless to win it. They do not defend the rights of the poor. Should I not punish them for this? Declares the Lord. Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? A horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority. And my people love it this way. But what will you do in the end? Do you hear the anguish in his voice? Jeremiah's voice. And behind that and above that, The voice of the Lord. Anguish over his people's sin. Notice again that he calls sin what it is. But he doesn't relish doing it. Many of the people I see out there that seem to regard themselves as prophetic seem to me to relish the downfall of those they are preaching against. And their followers are like, yeah, stick it to them. That's not prophetic. Prophetic is calling sin, sin, but with anguish in your heart. Hoping and willing and praying for genuine repentance on the part of your opponents. Holding out the invitation to return to the Lord and be forgiven. A fire in the mouth, but agony in the heart. No, I told you so. No, you heard it here first. Like and share. Tell your friends. Instead, it is belly-busting anguish over their pain and heart-pounding anguish over their sin and a heartfelt desire for them to be forgiven. Jeremiah asks, what will you do in the end? Well, sadly, we know the answer for Judah. They did not repent. And in the end, they got all that was coming to them, tempered with mercy. But we also know that the Lord extends forgiveness to all who repent and come to him. And we also know that there was another search for a righteous person that was successful. Remember Revelation chapter 5? When they searched high and low for someone who was worthy to open the seals, to bring about the forgiveness of sins and make all the promises come true. And they searched not just down all the streets of Jerusalem, but they searched in heaven and earth and under the earth. And John the Revelator wept because nobody was found who was worthy to open the seals. And then John was told, you don't have to anguish over this. See, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Victory in Jesus. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And John looked and he, what did he see? He saw the lamb that was slain. He looked for a lion. He sees a lamb. They're the same person, the lamb that was slain, now standing at the center of the throne. God has made a way to forgive sinners. People who deserve all of the judgment, all of the wrath of God. He's, he has made a way. For sinners to be forgiven. Why should I forgive you? The Lord asks. And then he answers it. Because of the anguish of Jesus. Because Jesus was forsaken by God. Because we had forsaken God. And in his death. He has made it all right again. The Lord is my salvation.